You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Great. We're going to be doing uh, three weeks. We're doing a new series that's starting this morning called Money, Sex and Power. I bet you can't guess what the series is going to be about. <laughs> yeah, Money, Sex and Power. This, this morning, I'm going to start on the first one which is going to be looking at money. Uh, I'm going to start with this quote from a guy called Richard Foster. Some of you might have um, read his book, Money, Sex and Power. It says this, The crying need today is for people of faith to live faithfully. And so I want us in this whole series to be challenged, are we living faithfully for God? Now, I believe these three subjects and that I'm going to be tackling are interwoven. I think that money tends to manifest itself as power. I think sex is used to acquire money and power. I think power is often called the best aphrodisiac. I think these three things very much come together. I think that we live in a society that could be saturated with the whole thing of money, sex, and power, and we want to build a church that is relevant to what happens every day. I think if you look in church history, when the church has spoken clearly on these three subjects, I believe that's often been a great time for revival in the nation, and therefore I would love us to be those that see God's kingdom come in. These are not just personal things. It's not just a private thing. I think all of these issues relate to other people. You think about money, you do business. You think about sex, it's within marriage. You think about power, you think within government. And so it's not just, oh, a little isolated thing. Oh, that's my personal thing. What about us as a church? What do we ever say on this? If we're really honest, as a church, we even say things, or have said things traditionally, and, and, and are you aware of that? Not this church, the church. So often, people think about money, they think of the vow of poverty, Often they think about sex and they think of the vow of chastity. Often they think about power and they think of the vow of obedience. But what do we think? What does the Bible say? How do we handle this topic for today? I think there is loads of good in all three. I tell you, preparing this this week, I thought, man, why did we do a three-week series? We should have done a 33-week series on this. You know what I'm saying? And and I don't want you to think, oh, Pete stood up there and he's approved and he doesn't approve of money, sex, or power. I'm not saying that at all. But I would challenge us with this. O.S. Hawkins, he's a USA pastor, author, and finance man, says this. The principal hindrance to the advancement of the kingdom of God is greed. Wow. Wow. If I had said to you, what do you think really stops God's kingdom coming in your life and in healing, what might you have replied? You might have said, it's people running half marathons on a Sunday morning and they're not singing. No, I'm sure you wouldn't have said that. You said, it's going to be great. What would you say is the principal reason that stops the kingdom of God coming? This guy was saying, it is our greed. I'm going to pray and then we're going to look at this subject just to say that there's two people that are normally with us, Edward and Chris, that are both preaching elsewhere. So I'd love to pray for them as we kick off. Father, we believe your word is relevant and powerful and instructs us today. Lord, we are bombarded with messages on money, sex, and power all the time. 
Father, would you speak into our hearts? And Father, we do want to pray for Edward and Chris, both preaching in other churches today. Father, bless them, anoint them, equip them. Let them be a blessing where they are. In Jesus' name, amen. Money, 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 money. What do I think about it? Well, what I guess I find shocking is that 1.2 billion people on earth live on less than $1 a day. 1.2 billion. I cannot imagine that number of people. They live on less than a dollar. 2.6 billion lack basic sanitation. I mean, this is quite shocking, isn't it? Over 20 thousand children die every day of preventable disease. 20,000 children a day of a preventable disease. And what do I find most shocking about those three statistics? I can become numb to them. That's what I find shocking. I think I can't imagine it. It's not like I can see somebody right here in front of me. I can forget it. I read a study this week I'm not looking at anyone in particular. I always feel a bit nervous when I do a subject on this. I read a a study this week that the nicer your car, the less likely you are to stop at a zebra crossing. (laughs) Oh, there you go. I drive a Safira. I stop for anyone. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) The reality is that when people surround themselves with their own wealth, they're less aware of other people. It's interesting, isn't it? I'm not trying to put you down if you work for Jaguar. I'm sure they're a very good company. But the reality is we can get so wrapped up in our own wealth that we forget other people. Now, we wouldn't quite do this today, but in the Crusades, you're aware in the history of this country, they had Crusades. When the mercenaries got baptized because they wanted to trust God, what they didn't want to do is trust God with their sword because they were going out to kill people. And this is no word of a lie. They used to baptize them holding their swords up. So they went down and literally they kept their swords out of the water. And the idea was we can go and do whatever we like because God's Lord of our life, but he's not Lord of my sword. Now, I would like to throw down a challenge because I'm just trying to be provocative. I wonder if some of us get baptized holding our wallets up. Push me under the water, he can be Lord of everything, but not of my wallet. Martin Luther, the great reformer, German theologian in the 1500s, says every man, it's just men, unfortunately, that are tight, needs two conversions. The first, his heart, the second of his wallet. What do you think about when it comes to money? Has money got into your heart? Does it help you to see other people? Bill Hybels, he's the founder of Willow Creek Church in Chicago, church of over 20,000. He says this, judging by the sheer number of verses related to money, it's obvious that a right relationship with our finances is of great importance to God. A right relationship to finance is of great importance to God. I often go to the story of Zacchaeus and Jesus Some of you would know that he was a very rich man. He was a tax collector. He was a short man. He couldn't see Jesus, so he he literally ran along, climbed a tree, and saw Jesus. When I was in Sunday school, we used to sing the song, I'm coming down to your house for tea. I don't know what it was, but we do know that Jesus went to his house. We know this. Jesus said what? Well, Zacchaeus said, golly, I've, I've done wrong. 
I'm going to give away my money. So what does Jesus say? Salvation has come to this home. We don't hear Zacchaeus repenting. But he must have done because the way of his attitude to money changed. And in some respect, Jesus had identified money and salvation much closer than we probably would. We'd say, oh, you're saved because you've prayed a prayer that said you're sorry. Whereas there's almost this thing of it's this close. Now, we live in a society where it is huge pressure on us for finances. Let's be honest, the whole, and if you're into marketing, you know, I, I quite enjoy it. I'm not having a knock. I'm just trying to be provocative. The whole marketing culture is that what you have is not enough. Let's get something else. They reckon the average person will watch 150,000 adverts in their lifetime. Most of them saying, what you have is not enough. You need something newer, shinier, brighter. So that is what we're bombarded with. This is not true of this church, but I found it very challenging. I read of one church this week, one church this week, that said if their whole congregation was made unemployed and that if everybody then tithed, gave 10% of their social security, i.e. what the government hands out, their income as a church would go up 60%. I thought, man alive, can you believe it? Apparently Christian giving in the UK is 1%. Christian giving in the UK is 1%. I'm going to have a little pop at Americans. If you're Americans, we love you and you're very welcome. They just give us a lot more facts. I find it a lot easier. (laughs) Apparently, USA Christians spend $8 a year on dieting. That's curing overconsumption. And only $2 a year on mission. I think, what about us? What is our relationship to money? Neil Hannon, some of you might have heard of him. He's a singer-songwriter. He did an album, Regeneration, part of the Divine Comedy, says this. The cars in the churchyard are shiny and German, distinctly at odds with the theme of the sermon. And during communion, I study the people squeezing themselves through the eye of a needle. Oh, it's quite a challenge to us, isn't it? I probably should have wrapped it, really, shouldn't I? I just didn't want to insult you. We read in Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a prophet in the Old Testament. He's speaking to God's people. They're in exile. They're under judgment. We read in Ezekiel 16, verse 49. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, And unconcerned, they did not help the poor and needy. I sometimes wonder if Ezekiel is more relevant to us than we'd like to admit. Are we those that are overfed and unconcerned? Alan Storkey, he's an economist, sociologist, and artist, said, Consumerism is the chief rival to God in our culture. So I'm trying to provoke us and challenge us. We're looking at this whole theme, money, sex, and power. You see, the difficulty is that we think we will find satisfaction in what we own. We will find security in the services that we get. And if we don't have it, we tend to go into debt. 
I don't know if you saw it. It was, I think it was just this week that they reckon the average personal debt now will stand at £10,000. That's not your mortgage. <laughs> yeah, we'd all laugh a mortgage at £10,000, wouldn't we? Just your personal debt. Everybody in this country. Student loans, yeah, yeah, that didn't come into your personal debt either. They reckon we'll clock in at 44000 They reckon that as a society, I cannot understand this number, but I read it, so I'm going to pass it on. £1.496 trillion is how much we've overborrowed as individuals. We spend £52.7 billion a year as individuals in interest because we've bought stuff that we cannot afford. 20, two, no, sorry, 247 people go bankrupt or insolvent every single day. That's just in the UK. I'm not popping the estates now. I'm having a challenge to us. Yeah, I always think, what's that look like? I don't know, twice the room, you could say. Every single day, bankrupt, bankrupt. Because we've got caught up in this thing of debt. Nine million are in serious debt problems in the UK. Nine million. What's the population now? 64? That's like one in seven. I mean, this would be embarrassing. Isn't it? One, two, three, four, five, six. Sorry, you're a visitor. I won't do that to you. <laughs> Stand, Richard. You're in debt. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Stand. If I could go round and round. These people are in serious debt. Now, they're not. I'm not going to speak that over you. Sit yourselves down. But that's what the stat is saying. It must be people in the room. There is a huge challenge for us with money. They reckon to raise a child, I got my wife up to plug the meat up, to raise a child costs 30 pounds, 23 pence per day from 0 to 21. 30 pounds, 23 pence a day. So some of you already sat there thinking, how much is that a lifetime, Pete? Well, I can tell you, if you raise a child from 0 to 21, it's 231,000 pounds, 712 pounds, 95 pence. And if you've got more than one child, you've got very deep pockets. There's a huge challenge, isn't there? I could go on and on. What I guess I did find staggering, and this, states, this one did come back from the States, in the USA, people consume twice as much as they did in the 1950s, but are no happier. That's quite sobering, isn't it? Twice as much as they did in the 1950s, but are no happier. Sometimes I think, as a nation, we end up being like dogs, chasing our own tail, making, thinking that maybe if we catch the next thing, it will make us happy. Ecclesiastes, another book of the Old Testament, says this, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. That's a huge challenge. Now, obviously, I I can't confess to things like this because I'm paid by the church, so I'm obviously always... But if I'm brutally honest, I could feel really challenged by that. I always think, oh God, if I, if I just had another, if I had one more thousand pounds, I'd be, uh, it'll be fine. If I had another five thousand pounds, oh, that'd be great. 
How much do I really need to be happy? I mean, this is sad, isn't it? How much time have I spent thinking about it? You know, I used to think, golly, if I won a million quid, I'd be happy. But I think, let's be honest, if you won a million quid, you couldn't even afford a house in Ealing, could you? I think I'd have to win at least five now. Because when I brought it, I couldn't afford to run it. You know what I'm saying? You suddenly think, golly, you know, I always thought, wow, a million pound. No, it'd have to be more, wouldn't it? What a challenge. Tim Chester, he's an Englishman, he's a church planter up in Sheffield. He says this, we have baptized the lie of consumerism and expect God to provide all we want. So here's the big challenge. Are we any different to everybody else in society? Do they just say, well, look, the reality is everybody thinks if I had a little bit more, it would make me happier. Although we've got twice as much as the 1950s and it's not made us any happier. But am I like this? If I'm, if I'm brutally honest, if I just bought those shoes, if I just had that car, if I just, would it make me happier? I think there's a huge challenge biblically of contentment. I find it fascinating that if you go to the, the Ten Commandments that we know God gave to, to Moses for the people of God, the first one was what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And what was the tenth one? It's not meant to be a test, I will tell you. Do not covet. It's almost like the whole of it is wrapped in this. If you're content is who God is and not coveting from your neighbor, that is going to be a massive lesson in life. Paul, in the New Testament, he was one who went around telling people all about Jesus. He writes to a young man. Young man, he was 40, we think, when he got the letter. Timothy. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we take nothing out of it. I mean, it's that classic, isn't it? Somebody asked, how much did the American Jay Rockefeller leave when he died? And his accountant was asked this by some press. How much did he leave? And the accountant smartly said all of it. It's funny, isn't it? You don't take it, you know? He left the lot. We read words of Jesus in Luke 12. Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. When I was a kid on a Friday afternoon when school had finished, and I know schools have just started, there used to be a program called Crackerjack. Uh, yeah, people remember that, Crackerjack? And, yeah, and on, the, on the television program, they go things like Steeplejack, and you go, no, Crackerjack. <laughs> Lumberjack, no, Crackerjack. And one of the games they had on Cracker Jack was these people all had to stand on stools like this. And they would ask you a question. If you got it right, they gave you a prize. And so literally you stood like this. And then they asked you another question, you get another prize. And, and the thing was, how much could the kids get in their arms? And if they got a, a question wrong, they gave them a cabbage. Because they put that on there and that made it harder to hold on to the prizes. You know what I'm saying? And suddenly they'd be, oh, they'd be dropping them. And whoever held on the most... They won. Now, that was a silly game on a Friday, wasn't it? Or is that the game that we're still playing? Actually, if I could put my arms out and hold as much as I possibly could. How many of us have seen the T-shirt, Who Has the Most Toys Wins? Do we genuinely live that, or are we content in God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a German pastor and theologian at the end of the Second World War, said, our hearts have, only, have room only for one 
all-embracing devotion. And we can only cleave to one Lord. You know, the Bible doesn't say you can love God and money. It says you cannot serve God and money. You, you, you can't be done. It's like synchronized swimming on your own. I mean, it's just not synchronized swimming, is it? The things just don't go together. It's a challenge. Instead, the psalmist tells us, take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's what I love about the whole thing of singing. That's what I love about when we gather with one another, because what we really say is, come on, let's take delight in God. Ah, I mean, that's worth immeasurably more, isn't it? Ah, he. I mean, what, what are we just hearing in the worship? He loves us. He wants a relationship with you. <laughs> I mean, what's that worth? Oh, how he loves you. How he adores you. Relationship with you. That's what the Bible says. John Piper, he's an American teacher, pastor, and author, says this. The fight of faith is the fight to keep your heart contented in Christ. To really believe and to keep on believing that he will meet every need and satisfy every longing. That's, that's, that's what we're being challenged by. Do we really delight ourselves in Christ? Story goes, this is not in the Bible, it's just an illustration, that this very rich man, very rich man, manages to take two bags of gold with him when he dies. So when he gets to the pearly gates, he's got his, his bags and he's carrying blocks of gold. Anyway, he goes up to the pearly gates, and Peter is there and says, afraid you can't bring anything in here. He says, no, 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 I've got my gold. He said, well, we don't really allow people. Oh, please, can I bring it in? So Peter says, go on then, all right, bring it on in. So one of the angels says to Peter, what's he got in his bag? And Peter turns around and says, paving slabs. We get so caught up on, oh, this is it. This is, I've, I've heard that it's huge value. But suddenly in heaven, is that really what's going to be of huge value? Somebody once said, what's happened in this life is that somebody's broken into the shop on the high street. But they've not nicked anything. They've just swapped all the prices on all the tags, on all the items. And then we go in there shopping and we suddenly realize they've got the different value. But we don't realize it. I would encourage you, find your security in God. Do not let your self-worth be driven by your net worth. So easy, isn't it? Someone says, what do you do for a job? How much do you earn? What are you worth? No. Will Smith, I don't know if he believes or not, he's an actor, producer, and rapper, says too many people spend money they have not earned to buy things they do not want to impress people they do not like. I mean, it's stupid when you stop and think about it, isn't it? We're buying stuff with things that we haven't got the money for to impress people we don't even like. Why? J.K. Chesterton, he was an English poet, writer, and philosopher 100 years ago, said there are two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more. The other is to desire less. That's quite wise, isn't it? Do we just think, I want to get more, or do we just desire less? 
Where is our contentment found as a church? Now, I do want to warn us, let's not be legalistic. And I'm very aware that any illustration I give about money, it's easy to get legalistic. Paul writes to the church in Colossians, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of the world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, do not spend, we might add on. I'm not trying to turn us into a bunch of legalists. That is not my heart at all. In fact, I've got five practical things I would like to end with on money, and then I would just come to a conclusion. My practical thing is this. All I have comes from God. We are to be grateful. We are stewards. Everything belongs to him. John Wesley, uh, he wanted always to be a Church of England minister, but preached in the open air, so they asked him to leave. He formed the Methodist Church. He was once told, your house has burnt down. This is a true story. How would you respond? Marwin, where you live, your house has burnt down. (laughs) John Wesley replied this, the Lord's house burned, one less responsibility for me. (laughs) They didn't ask Mrs. Wesley, I don't know how she would have responded. (laughs) But I thought, wow, what an attitude. The Lord's house burnt. One less responsibility. Oh, God, I'm a steward of his. All that we have comes from God. Otherwise, we think we've earned it. Otherwise, we think it's mine. I think this changes everything. I was going to do this, but again, I don't want to offend you. If you're visiting, you're very, very welcome. I was going to get everybody to take their wallet out and give it to their person on their right. Yeah, and then I was going to take an offering because I reckon I might get more. You see, if it's not your wallet, you think, hey, God, they've got a lot. Let's just stick it in. (laughs) I'm not going to worry about the week. It's not my money. (laughs) Oh, but isn't that true for us if we're believers anyway? Oh, I'm only a steward. I'm holding the next person's wallet. I'm, I'm just a steward of what he's given me. But we don't tend to live like that. You see, we tend to think, oh, this is mine. I'll give something of mine. The Bible says all we have comes from God. Point one, practical point. Point two, live within the means he has provided. I know that this is faith and I know this is discipline. But the reality is that if we don't, what we're really saying is, Father, you're not giving me enough. Do I want to say that to him? You see, if really we go into debt and we get ourselves in trouble, what we're really saying is you're just not providing enough. I can't trust you. I've subbed it myself. Randy Alcorn, very helpful book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. He says this, it is impossible to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus without also becoming a fully developed steward of your resources. I love these strong words, don't they? It's impossible. (laughs) Are you living within the means that God's provided you? My third point, third practical thing, honor God with your first 10%. You see, this is your first fruit is an act of faith. It shows importance rather than what is left over. R.T. Kendall 
a great American who used to lead a church in central London, writer, speaker, and teacher, said all of us need encouragement with regard to giving. None of us by nature is a tither. All of us are allergic to tithing. You might say, I don't have a problem with it. Well, R.T. Kendall says, you do. He says, you're allergic to it. You've got to learn it. You've got to grow it. Honor God with your money. Now, you might say to me, Pete, if I did that, I couldn't afford the repayments on the car. What do you think I might say? (laughs) Give the car back. Oh, honor God. You see, what we do with our money shows what we value. My fourth point. Budget and save. I dropped my daughter at university yesterday. Suddenly there's a panic because we do the first shop in Tesco's. I love this. You know what I'm saying? Here I am as a dad. I say, because I I give them an an allowance when they're at university. I'm pushing the shopping trolley around saying, put in whatever you like. I'm not commenting. You're paying. (laughs) Just to make it even worse, as we go down the chocolate aisle, I'm going, oh, please, Lois, can't I have some chocolate? She's going, no, I can't afford it. I said, I've not had any treats and I've come shopping with you, please. And she's suddenly going to me, oh, I don't know how I'm going to afford this. Oh, yeah, because suddenly you think, I've got a budget. And then before I left, I dropped at university yesterday, she said, look, could you just write me a budget on a bit of paper? I'd done that for her a month ago in the summer, but she wasn't interested then. But once we've done a shot, she's suddenly thinking, I need the budget. <laughs> How much money can I spend a month? I said, well, let's write it all down. We write it all down. But what about you? Are you really budgeting? What are the essentials? What are your commitments? What are the extras? John Wesley, I quoted him earlier, said this, gain all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. My fifth point, my last practical point, listen and respond to God. You see, I think with this, we must be sensitive to him. The danger is with money that we can become so budgeted or so organized or so thought through that we're not listening to him. What are you saying, Father? What would you say to me today? Oh, golly, you know, just bless that person. Just bless them. What's he saying to you? How do you do it? Andy Stanley, North Point Community Church leader, he's an author, says, when you begin to view your wealth from God's perspective, you'll see that the thing to fear isn't giving away too much, but sowing too little. Ah, if I listen to him, it would change everything. So I know that I'm running right out of time. I just want to end on this. It's so easy with money. It's such a big topic. We can be bombarded with so many things. And and, and look, there's lots of good about it. I'm not here to decry it. I'm trying to provoke us and challenge it. I'm trying to say, what's the Bible say? How do we get some wisdom on these subjects? What I really want to challenge you, though, is what do you really long for? What do you really long for? You see, there is a theme right throughout the Bible of what people are saying, this is what I long for. Psalm 42 goes like this, as the deer pants for streams of water, my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with him? 
Oh, you think, would that be our heart's cry? What do I really long for? Some financial security? Bigger pension pot? Oh, what does my heart long for you, God? Psalm 63, you, God, are my God. 